Welcome back to the FreightWaves Intermodal Summit. I'm John Kingston, FreightWaves Editor-at-Large. When you think about the broad definition of intermodal, there are so many things in it that sometimes it's easy to overlook some of the smaller things. And one of those smaller things is the chassis that holds the intermodal containers as they are pulled from and to the port or the rail yard. And uh, the people in the industry do know how important the chassis are. I did go to the intermodal, the big intermodal show in Long Beach a few years ago. And when I got there, I was surprised at just how much floor space was devoted to uh, marketing chassis. But what you couldn't see then is that for domestic producers, times were not good. This was, it would have been, I think, 2018. There was enormous import penetration by Chinese manufacturers, but soon the U.S. industry would push back through the relief processes that the U.S. government offered for importers. They don't always win, but in this case, the U.S. manufacturers did win, and they won big earlier this year. Here to talk about it is Robert D. Francesco. He is a partner with the law firm of Wiley Ryan, which was the chief legal counsel for the push. Robert's practice involves all aspects of international trade and trade remedy proceedings. His expertise lies in both U.S. anti-dumping and countervailing duty proceedings and export control matters. He has argued in front of the the U.S. Department of Commerce, or lobbied with the U.S. International Trade Commission, the United States Trade Representative, the U.S. Court of International Trade, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Robert, we want to welcome you to the uh, Freightways Intermodal Summit today. Great, John. Thank you for having me. So first, let's set the groundwork. Talk about the coalition that came together uh, and your firm's involvement in, in how that all uh, how that all developed. Sure. So uh, to prepare one of these cases. Uh, in order to file an anti-dumping and countervailing duty case, you have to have the petitioning coalition must represent at least 25% of U.S. production in order to file the petition. And you have to then demonstrate that at least 50% of domestic production supports the petition. So when we put this case together, the coalition that we formed, they represent, in fact, well over 50%. Uh, they're very close to 100% of domestic production. Um, and so we put that coalition of uh, companies together. We prepared the anti-dumping petition, the countervailing duty petition, uh, and the injury petition as well. And then you file uh, those petitions with at two agencies at simultaneously, one with the Department of Commerce and one with the International Trade Commission. Each agency is tasked as a different task in evaluating the case, the Department of Commerce measures the amount of dumping or subsidization and or subsidization. And then the International Trade Commission evaluates the degree to which those dumped and subsidized imports are causing injury. And so that was the case we put together uh, and we worked with the five major uh, manufacturers uh, to do that. All right, let's get right to the numbers because everybody wants to know numbers. As I mentioned earlier, this was a big win uh, and the measurement of that are the size of the duties and the tariffs that are being put on against Chinese imports of chassis. How big were they? So in the subsidy case, uh, the duties were uh, finalized at 44%. And then in the dumping phase of the case, uh, the duties were 180%. So the collective duty, uh, when it's all said and done, is about 220%. Now, 220% of what? So that would be assessed on the entered value of the chassis or the subassembly. The case covered both the complete chassis and also if someone were entering, say, a chassis frame uh, or 
in a complete running gear or something of that nature to be attached to a chassis frame, those duties would be assessed on the entered value of either the finished chassis or those sub-assemblies. And where does the process stand? You've got this big decision. <clears throat> it doesn't go into effect overnight. Uh, when will those tariffs and duties start to take effect? So they're actually in effect now um, because we've actually gotten to the end of the case and uh, the final uh, federal register notices were published. But when you file one of these cases, so we filed this case last year, last September, um, there's a period between when you file and when the Department of Commerce issues a preliminary determination, either in the dumping case or the subsidy case. When they issue that preliminary determination, that's when duties begin to be collected. So in this case, uh, duties were actually beginning to be collected in December of last year. And then on the subsidy side, on the dumping side, uh, they then began to be collected in uh, February, late February, March uh, of the following year. Uh, and they've been being collected uh, up through this period. And now they're going to be the final duties are in place. Uh, and so they are being collected as we speak. And these duties flow to the federal treasury, correct? It doesn't go to the U.S. domestic manufacturers as a form of relief. That's correct. Uh, it's, the, it's another tax at the border, and that tax goes directly to the U.S. Treasury. Now, did you file this action specifically against China, uh, a specific Chinese entity, uh, or was it against all importers or you know, U.S. exports to the U.S. of chassis? Right. It's a good question. So in all of these cases, even with respect to other cases outside of chassis, all of these cases involve imports from a particular country, irrespective of the suppliers from that country. In this case, there are uh, one main supplier, but there are others and other sub-assembly producers that are also subject to the case. Uh, so it applies to any imports from that country, not necessarily from a specific supplier from that Right. And, and who, was the, who was the company that the action was taken against? So the, in this case, the main respondent was CIMC. Um, they're one of the largest producers. Uh, so most of the imports were theirs. Um, but again, if another chassis came in from a different supplier, they would also be subject to duties. Right. And um, what is the Chinese government's involvement in this? Uh, was, was CIMC just a particularly cost-effective producer or were they being backed by Beijing? That's a good question. So uh, when we file the subsidy case, the respondents or the entities that have to participate are both the company, in this case, CIMC, and the Chinese government. And so the Chinese government had to participate as well. Uh, in addition to that, the Chinese government uh, participated at some level at the International Trade Commission. Um, and the subsidy case itself alleged that because CIMC was a state-owned entity, uh, effectively owned and controlled by the Chinese government. They received special benefits from the Chinese government as a result. Uh, and that was factored into the Department of Commerce's analysis in its subsidy calculation. Uh, and it also played a role in the dumping calculation, which is why those margins are as high as they are. Now, how does the Chinese government work to subsidize a company like CIMC? Uh, do they just send them a check or... Are you are you able to get into that level of detail when you're dealing with this and figure out how they manage to be so competitive? We do. So uh, when we filed the petitions, especially the subsidy petitions, we alleged it was certainly over 50, if not more than that, uh, different subsidy programs, everything ranging from 
land for less than adequate remuneration, loans and grants and tax benefits for uh, that provided countervailable benefits, as well as the steel itself. Um, so the steel that goes into manufacturing the chassis, uh, those were also that steel was also provided what we call less than adequate remuneration, and it factors into uh, the overall subsidy calculation. All right, and uh, of course, you know, there's always. I don't want to get political here, and we don't want to talk about COVID nineteen, but there's all the talk about whether the Chinese government may have covered up some things in the lab. Do you feel when you go into an action like this that you're going to get a full disclosure from the Chinese government and the manufacturer itself on the level of subsidy and the level of support? That's another good question. So the degree to which, and this is true of every case, not just the Chinese case, but the degree to which a respondent, so either the company or the government doesn't participate to the best of its ability, and this is in the U.S. statute and actually part of the WTO agreement uh, that governs it as well, if they don't participate to the best of their ability, the authorities, in this case, the Department of Commerce, are allowed to take what's called an adverse inference, and they can assume that you were not participating in order to conceal something, and they would assume uh, adverse facts, and that's a way of increasing the duty rate. Uh, and in fact, that happens. Uh, it happened in this case, uh, and it happens frequently in a lot of our cases. So, in this case, did the Chinese? W- do you feel that they came up with good information? Were they open with their data, or so you're saying that the Commerce Department actually kind of stuck it to them for non-disclosure? So there were issues in this case uh, throughout where the Chinese government oftentimes does not supply the information requested by the Department of Commerce. And so for specific programs, like in this case, lending uh, steel for adequate remuneration, um, they did apply uh, what we would call an adverse inference as it relates to calculating the margin for that particular program. Uh, And then overall, uh, we had other issues on the dumping side where uh, the company uh, failed to submit information to the Department of Commerce uh, and adverse inferences were, were made as well. All right, so in this case, taking the fifth, like the equivalent of taking the fifth, doesn't really help you. You can get hurt. No. You can get hurt by it, correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, let's talk about what's happened to the domestic industry, what happened before this, and what you see has happened after that. So since the case was filed, and even actually while the duties were being put into place, uh, domestic producers for the first time were able to compete in a fairly traded market and really rapidly began... Uh, hiring new shifts, bringing production back, and ramping up really as quickly as they possibly could. Uh, in fact, one of the coalition members were, was essentially starting from a dead stop, um, and they had not been in, in the market for several, several years, uh, and this action allowed them to re-enter the market. Uh, and you know, like the other manufacturers, they are working as hard as they can to ramp up that production. Right. And how many members were in your coalition? Uh, there were five total. Okay. And was that pretty much most of the U.S. industry? Yeah. they re- As we talked about earlier, they represented almost 100%, if not 100% of domestic production, or what was left of domestic production. Okay. Now, let's talk, though, about what the price of chassis is going to do as a result of this. Um, I mean, I guess it's easy to say it's going to go, you know, you do the quick back of the envelope math, and you came up with a 220% roughly tariff. I am imagining that the price of a chassis is not going to go 220%. But what do you, is there any kind of formula where you would normally translate a certain tariff and duty into what it means retail 
at a retail level? I mean, that's not something we normally do. Uh, and it's certainly not something that the government uh, takes into account in these cases. Obviously, tariffs of certain sizes have different effects uh, in the market. Sometimes you'll have cases where uh, relatively small tariffs actually force uh, producers out of the market. Um, we've, I've had cases where we've had uh, tariffs of less than 5% have resulted in uh, almost a, a complete cessation in, in shipments. Um, whereas other cases, you'll have significant tariffs where volume will come down and prices will moderate, prices will reflect uh, the, that fairly traded market. Um, but volume doesn't necessarily disappear from the market either. Yeah, I mean, because this is you know, this is a big number. I mean, two hundred twenty percent, and uh, you know, you're, you're talking that in some cases you've done five percent causes a supplier to exit the market. To, to have that burden, that two hundred twenty percent burden, and still be able to compete, I mean, it sounds on the surface impossible. Yes, you would think so. Um, but again, uh, some of the producers in this industry are backed by the Chinese government. And so the degree to which uh, companies want to try to re-enter the market um, and try to absorb some of those tariffs, they can try that. Uh, we've seen that in some cases. Um, certainly, there's a process by which after the final tariffs go into place, that the Department of Commerce will sometimes on an annual basis review those tariffs and will adjust them. So they may get higher, they may go lower, depending on any given year. Um, and so producers, oftentimes, if they want to participate in those reviews, they need to have imports uh, that are subject to duties in order to be able to do that. So sometimes we will see uh, producers stay in the market as a result. When you and the coalition undertook this effort, were there any other countries you were looking at? Are there, are there other suppliers out there that you thought might be problematic and then you decided to only focus in on China? Or was it all China all the time? I mean, I, I think what... Our goal was to address the major problem in the market at the time, and that was obviously the Chinese. Um, the Chinese had forced U.S. manufacturers and others, frankly, out of the market. Um, and so at the time we were bringing the case, you're always looking to be as successful as possible. And we were focusing on you know, the main problem at the time. Um, obviously, if there are other producers or other countries that become problematic, uh, we'll have to look at that as we go. Uh, but at the time we were preparing the case, it was to really focus on uh, the major problem at, at the time. And I would also mention um, the Canadians have now launched their own investigation uh, of Chinese chassis as well. Uh, so this is a, a phenomenon uh, affecting the North American market, really, not just the U.S. market. And how long were the Chinese a factor in this market? How, how long do your concerns go back? I mean, some of the uh, the evidence and the data that we supplied to the International Trade Commission, we went back over 10 years, uh, and you could see the effect the Chinese had where there was substantial amounts of U.S. production in the market, where U.S. producers were servicing significant portions, large portions of the market. Um, and then at the time the Chinese entered, uh, very rapidly after that, U.S. manufacturing was forced out of the market. Um, and it was really providing that historic context of over that period, I think, that helped the commission understand uh, the negative effects the Chinese had on U.S. manufacturing over that period. That it, it took putting into context that longer time frame, I think, that really helped. 
Um, the, the, the I'm going to keep coming back to that 220 number because I know when I wrote first wrote the story for Freight Waves and we spoke, I thought, wow, I mean, that's just an enormous number. How does it compare to other tariffs? I mean, you, it, it, I guess it's hard to compare to other tariffs because every industry is different. So it's very difficult to get an apples to apples number. But just try to do it. You know, how does 220 compare with uh, some other cases you've done? Yeah, so we've had cases, uh, China cases. In fact, I just finished one on uh, lawnmower engines, large engines that are used in, in riding lawnmowers. Uh, and those duties were 350%. Um, so it, it's not unusual to have large tariffs in, in Chinese cases, especially in manufactured products like a lawnmower engine or uh, a chassis that we're talking about. We've also had other China cases where the duties were in the 50, 60%, 30% range. Um, it, so it often depends on the product um, and the different factors that go into calculating a dumping margin uh, for that specific product. But we tend to see, as a general rule, higher margins on products that are manufactured like this, where you have lots of different inputs going into the product. Now, you talked about, we obviously, we've been talking here about the win that you had for chassis. You just talked about lawnmowers. Uh, let's make sure our readers, our readers, our listeners know that you don't always win, not just you, but that these cases don't always win. And that for the audience for the Intermodal Summit, that you did we participate in a case against containers a while back that was not successful. Can you tell me what are some of the findings of, let's say, the ITC or the Department of Commerce made in that that resulted in that not being successful? Because I think it's a good cautionary tale for any kind of industry that thinks, you know, this, this is an easy road to go down and we're going to get a big tariff and we're going to be real successful. Tell, talk about that container case and why it wasn't. Sure. Uh, happy to. Uh, first to preface it, I wasn't the attorney at the time they brought the case that when they lost it. So it's just... <laughs> right. And they probably <laughs> would have won had they hired you. Right? Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Uh, there was a 53-foot container case that was brought in 2011 um, by uh, one of the coalition members of our coalition at the time. And frankly, the facts were rather similar. You had a scenario where there was significant amounts of domestic manufacturing over a historic period. Uh, and rather quickly, when the Chinese had entered the market, they had forced those domestic producers out of the market almost entirely. To the point where by the time they had brought the case, there was very little, if any, U.S. manufacturing left. And the theory of the case was what we call a material retardation case, which is a, a term of art under the statute that allows a U.S. industry that's trying to reconstitute itself or to, re, or to start, but is unable to start because of the presence of large amounts of unfairly traded product in the market, to seek relief. And that was what they were doing here. Um, and unfortunately, they weren't successful for a lot of different reasons where the commission had found that um, what the, the industry that w was trying to restart um, wasn't necessarily producing similar products or similar enough products uh, to what the Chinese were shipping into the market. Uh, and that there were other reasons that the customers were purchasing um, those containers other than the, the dumped and subsidized prices. Now, interestingly, in our chassis case, um, we actually used the experiences from that container case uh, to highlight for the commission what happens when, uh, in one of these cases, there's a negative decision, as there was in, in the container case. 
following that negative decision, the small amount of U.S. manufacturing that was trying to get started disappeared from the market entirely. And to the point now where today you have a complete monopoly over the market by the Chinese container manufacturers, who, by the way, are the same manufacturers of chassis. Um, And so today we're in a scenario where you have a very tight market, very tight, uh, hard to find containers in a market where you have a complete monopoly and no other ability to find any other sources of supply. And so that was something uh, that we wanted to make sure the commission understood as it related to chassis that, you know, if a wrong decision by the commission could potentially result in a similar scenario as you have right now in containers. Uh, and so the case is instructive, I think, in that way. Well, we'll see what the impact of the uh, case here on the chassis is. Maybe next year, if I get that for the IANA meeting in Long Beach, it's a great meeting. We're not going to get to it this year. Uh, I think it's still going ahead. We'll see. Uh, but maybe the floor will be covered with domestic Chinese manu- domestic manufacturers of chassis that are there because of the your actions. So we do want to thank Robert Francesco. He's a partner with Wiley Rhine. He is the attorney, the outside attorney, who led a coalition of domestic U.S. domestic manufacturers of chassis uh, to a victory in the U.S. US procedures for dealing with heavy level of imports. I've been your host, John Kingston. Please stick around for more of the Freightways Intermodal Summit.